Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Nicholas Rowe. Welcome, Dr. Rowe. How are you doing? I'm well, trying to keep warm out here. <laughs> You're in Boston, right? This is true. Yep. Yeah, so I, I can imagine. It's I think it's 80s here, so I'm I nowhere far from where you are. <laughs> we're, we're envious. <laughs> just, it was just about freezing last night. Uh, hence the headwear. <laughs> uh-huh. So before we get started, just let our audience know just a little bit about who you are. Sure. Um, yeah, so I I uh, serve at uh, Gordon College, uh, which is just north of Boston. Um, I'm the Dean of Student Engagement here, which means that I oversee all student learning activities outside the four walls of the classroom. Um, but I'm also Associate Professor of History and Peace Studies uh, at this institution as well. So uh, I specialize in Atlantic history. So I, I look at uh, a lot of different things across the Atlantic, um, particularly uh, uh, racial interactions and other cultural things having to do with the Atlantic context. Awesome, awesome. And I met you in St. Louis. So I'm excited uh, to talk to you today um, on this topic that I think is it's very important, the formation of the Black church. and um, so uh, for for those who are thinking through uh, why the black church exists, um, many times when you say black church, they're like, well, for our white brothers and sisters, they might say, well, why, there's no the church is not based on race. The church mm. is just the church. Mm. Um, when you get that kind of a question, um, how do you talk about how the black church was formed? Yeah, well, look, the black church is a thing, right? I mean, it's uh, despite the any claims that it's just the church, unfortunately, um, we have the church and uh, particularly uh, Christian formation of people of African descent within a uh, an American context that was racialized, right? Intentionally racialized. Um, so uh, the black church, basically evolves uh, because of, um, unfortunately, racist structures within the society that separated people on the basis of their racist background. Um, You know, we're grateful that the Holy Spirit uh, 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 works in the context of all things, whether they be good or bad, to be able to uh, do his work in terms of formation and growing his people. But, uh, But these are the structures that were in place it didn't stop the Holy Spirit from forming people and shaping people um, according to what we talk about in the scriptures, conforming them to the image of Christ, but it was in, within these racial structures that it took place. Um, and so within the context for people of African descent, this is the black church, right? It's the context in which we were separated out of the main society and uh, we had to take care of uh, uh, formational matters in that context. When we think about the black church as an organizational um, structure, um, we immediately usually go to the AME church. Mm. Um, can you tell us why that is so, and what is the AME church in this formation? How was it formed? Yeah, look, the, uh, the, the, the black church in the largest context of it um, had many paths to its formation, um, and largely those formed within the context of various denominations within the, the U.S. So, um, particularly in the early part of uh, American colonial society, uh, of which people of African descent have always been a part of from the beginning. Um, You had largely Baptist congregations. um, You you had Calvinist separatist congregations coming from from England. um, And then you also had the rise of Methodists who who basically, you know, the Methodist church basically started in England um, under the... Uh, powerful anointing of uh, John Wesley, um, who sought a, a, a more, shall we say, inspired, emotional, holistic connection uh, to God in terms of worship, but also in terms of practice, right, and devotion, uh, as opposed to the state-sponsored sponsored Anglican church, right? Um, one that could reach an appeal 
appeal to the common folk as opposed to the sort of high church, very intellectual um, aspects of the Anglican church. So when it came to the US, uh, Francis Asbury, who was born in England, was sent to the US to begin the Methodist movement here, these small circles, these small meetings. Um, in many ways, we say that the, the AME church is, is one of the first institutionally um, autonomous, right? Racially autonomous churches that get formed. I mean, there are other churches that form among Baptists and other sort of denominations, but as far as the AME church is concerned, it is the first uh, denomination uh, that is totally under the control of people of African descent, right? Um, it's an offshoot of the Methodists, and there's a long story about that, obviously, we'll talk about today. But uh, for all intents and purposes, it is the first denomination that's formed that is institutionally and autonomously controlled by people of African descent. So the, the black church precedes that. There are sort of separate black congregations within those contexts. But, but institutionally speaking, right, um, this is the, uh, the first denomination where you, you see African-Americans that are in leadership and in control. Mm -hmm. Before we get into how kind of the start of the, the AME um, as an organization, talk a little bit about those black churches that existed uh, maybe before uh, the formation of the AME um, denomination. Yeah. So uh, for a lot of um, people of African descent, I mean, uh, People could come to faith. People, you know, people came to faith in a variety of different ways. Um, usually, um, for good or for ill, they came to faith within the context of uh, uh, being within a slavery structure by which, you know, their their uh, their masters, their white slave owners, would expose them to Christianity. It was it was a mixed bag in terms of that. Some of them thought it was a good idea to do that because. You know, it would, uh, and, and they would take scripture out of context, and they thought that that by making them Christian, uh, they would be more amenable to the institutional structure of slavery and the social order. Um, a lot of slave owners resisted that wholeheartedly because inherently, um, Christian message talks about freedom, and they they immediately thought were intimidated by that or, or threatened by that that they might start giving them ideas about their own autonomy, right? Um, Whatever the case may be, in both cases, uh, you had black folk coming to faith in the context of that. Um, more often than not, though, they, in, in a lot of those different situations, uh, they would often sneak off by themselves um, to have their own occasions for worship and gathering together to, to be in God's presence and to worship and learn from together. They, they did these usually under the cover of night. Um, usually out in the woods, away from the plantations and away from the fields in which they worked, and which they set up um, uh, locations made out of trees and everything else, brush arbors, they called them, where they would meet together and uh, to pray um, and to um, seek God in the context of the things, to worship. Um, and inevitably, they'd be talking about seeking meaning and freedom in the context of those things. So it was always a, a bit of an informal deal. Um, there were formal services maybe where whites were present to sort of keep an eye on things, but there were always these sort of informal autonomous uh, groupings and gatherings as well um, where this took place. So before the formalization of these things, I mean, there, there was always a sense of these sorts of uh, informal type gatherings where folks would, would gather together to worship and to pray. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, so when we think about the formation of the AME, um, denomination, we immediately think of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Can you just give us a little bit of background about uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and who they were? Yeah. Um, uh, Richard Allen uh, obviously was born in the middle of the 1700s. Um, he was born into slavery um, uh, near around the Philadelphia area. Um, and um, in growing up, the best the best account that we have of Richard Allen and his background was an account of his own memoirs that was uh, written close toward the end of his life in the 1830s, where he he talked about the uh, the sort of formation of the church. But uh, his own personal story talks about um, how he came to faith 
uh, when he was 17 years old under the ministry of the traveling ministry of, of the Methodist circuit preachers. Um, and he records it as a very powerful emotional experience. It was a total whole body experience. It wasn't just intellectual ascent, but just uh, a real um, uh, emotional and, and physical encounter with uh, the Holy Spirit that led to his, con led to his conversion. Um, he clearly was would be somebody today that we would say would be very gifted in terms of preaching, um, communication, uh, very, very, we would say anointed, right? We would, we, would, we would use the word anointed really in the full sense of that word because um, very early on, um, he started to uh, speak informally into large groups and that resulted in large uh, numbers of folks converting as a function of his preaching. And uh, some of the earliest leaders in the Methodist movements really realized quick, very, very quickly. Francis Asbury, who, uh, of course, is some of the foundational leaders of the Methodist Church in America, realized his skills very, very early and um, invited him to come along or also nominated him to go along with other circuit preachers on their writing circuits and their, and their sort of campaigns. Um, so that's how he became, he basically entered into the ministry. Um, he also had to work with his hands, right? Um, it was really under the context of his ministry and his uh, and his ability that his uh, slave his slave master right uh, was converted, and um, and through a, a bunch of contexts in terms of that, uh, he was able to work and obtain his own freedom, which allowed him to now be further devoted to the ministry in that context. So um, so this led to the context in which uh, the the events started. Uh, that would lead to the formation of the church. Um, he was assigned um, to a place outside of the Philadelphia, where he was, again, very powerful in ministry there. And uh, St. George's Church in Philadelphia, which was the main church where uh, the, uh, the Methodists were located, wanted him to come and minister to the small number of black congregants. That was predominantly white church, but they had a small number of uh, black congregants and they wanted them to minister uh, to, their, to their congregants. So they, so they called him in with the instruction that the, he would uh, minister and preach to the, their black congregants at five o'clock in the morning, right? Um, so that uh, at least their needs would be sorted out before the regular service at 10 o'clock in the morning, right? So nevertheless, he worked at that uh, um, well, I won't call it an ungodly hour because all time is God's time, <laughs> but he, he was pretty, particularly effective in terms of that, um, not only in terms of working through that, um, but also because he noticed that uh, there were a lot of people of African descent in Philadelphia in and of itself. And uh, his realization of that really was the beginning of his powerful ministry in Philadelphia. And Absalom Jones? Absalom Jones um, was connected to the Anglican Church. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of work around him, but I know that uh, uh, he was also, again, somebody who was very, very anointed in preaching. So he was based in Philadelphia and was, was working with the Anglican Church there. Um, and so the two of them came together when some of the problems e erupted that would lead to the, to the formation of the AME, right? So they basically worked in partnership. I mean, eventually, they, 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 uh, Absalom was a known figure, right? Um, he was, uh, uh, was an ordained minister within the Anglican Church. And, uh, and so, but, but he was also, like uh, Richard Allen, uh, committed to working with the, uh, the black population within Philadelphia. And so that's how they basically came to know each other. And so what, what, what caused what him to say we need um, them? What event um, led them to, to form their own denomination? Right. So, um, so like I said before, um, uh, Richard Allen was, uh, if you read in his uh, account, he talked about how there was this huge harvest field, a huge field waiting for harvest, by which he identified the substantial um, population of people of African descent in Philadelphia. Philadelphia at that time, um, you know, for a while, I mean, 
uh, Allen had served in the Revolutionary War, um, and and Philadelphia was sort of the center of um, revolutionary sentiment. Between Philadelphia and Boston, both those cities were the center of revolutionary sentiment. Um, because of that, Philadelphia, because of its location, particularly uh, closer to uh, the South, um, drew a lot of freed um, Africans, right? Uh, freed people of African descent. So it, it had a very, very substantial population. There were also folks who were slaves there, but Philadelphia uh, and Pennsylvania as a state was uh, going through the motions to really start to, to outlaw slave owning within that state. So as a result, it was known, um, James Fortin, there's a couple of other major names uh, there, known to be one of the places that was, they called it the best place for a free African to live, right? Literally called it that. And so it attracted a lot of people of African descent. Many of these folks were unchurched, right? They were working in small trades and other sorts of things, but they were also financially on the, on the margins. Um, so Alan started working and preaching among these congregations wherever he could find space, open fields, everything else. And as a result of his ministry, um, lots of folks converted, uh, uh, became Christians. And so he started bringing them to St. George's Church, which was a predominantly white church. Um, and then, you know, the problem started, right? Um, you know, the... the uh, you know, that the, the practices of sort of cultural racism started to kick in. Within the church itself, you, you started to see incidents of segregation started to take place. I mean, St. George's was a, was a you know, reasonably decent-sized building. You know, the black folks would sit in one section of the church. The white folks would sit in another section of the church. As the black folks became more and more numerous within the congregation, they were told they needed to give up their seats, their pews, and to sit uh, around the edges, the sort of walls around the church so that white folks can have the seats. Um, as Allen's ministry just continued and more black folks started to come into the church, uh, eventually the church basically started on a building project, a building expansion project, right? Uh, taking donations from all members of the church, black and white. Um, and so their building project consisted of building a balcony up top the regular level um, where uh, I suppose the plan was that the uh, black folks would go into the balcony. It's not exactly clear in, time, in terms of the uh, account what the entire plan was. What we do know is that uh, uh, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen were working to deal not just with the spiritual needs of the black population, but also the physical needs. They were, they were um, just economically very much deprived, and there were a lot of people in very dire economic straits. So their first move was to form what they called the Free African Society. It was a mutual aid society. And they formed this in order to, to come together to meet the uh, economic needs of the black population in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and, and they, it was an informal network where they could get each other jobs and do all sorts of other things. So for Alan, in his mind, um, the gospel was not only meeting the sort of spiritual and intellectual needs, it was also meeting the physical need. He saw the Christian community as meeting the needs of the whole person. And I think this was something that was very, very important at the time. He, he combined not only um, uh, orthodoxy, right, but also orthopraxis, right action, right? He combined the two of those things and it was definitely demonstrated in terms of that. But in terms of the spiritual need, he was starting to get more and more frustrated because of the behavior of the church and the church elders, right? So one day, um, Alan and Jones and their black congregants came into the church to worship. They were told by the uh, white sexton at the front door um, that they had to go to a specific place to go and sit. They, they were told that they had to go up to the balcony and that they would be told where they, would, where they were to sit, right? Because now all of a sudden the black folks have their own section. So either they misunderstood what he said or whatever, but they went to a particular section. And at the time of the service that they arrived, it was at the time of prayer. And as was their custom, all the congregants were on their knees. So they were going on their knees in terms of worship when all of a sudden one of the sextons came over and started rousting um, one of the black congregants, telling them that they can't stay there. You all got to move. Um, to which... You know, Alan said, well, can we at least finish praying for us? We're in the middle of praying. No, you've got to move now. 
if you don't move now, we'll, we'll forcibly move you over. And he starts waving over some of the sextons to come over and they physically started to rast them out. So there was all this scuffling and commotion when the prayer part of the service was done, Alan Jones and all the black congregants en masse just got up and walked out of the church. Um, to quote it, to quote Alan in his memoirs, uh, the church was no longer troubled with us. We left. <laughs> so that was the beginning of, uh, in some ways, the informal break, right, between the black congregants of St. George's and the white congregation. Um, by no means was the matter done there, but, uh, but that was the beginning of the end. Some historians di dispute whether or not this was a spontaneous thing or whether this was planned, that uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of this type of treatment um, broke them to the point, right? Got them to the point where um, Alan basically said, we have to make a statement, or whether or not this, this conduct of pulling them in the middle of prayer was so outrageous that so spontaneously they just decided, we've done, we've had enough. Whatever the case, it was clearly a statement for all of them to leave at once um, after that particular incident, never to return. What was St. George's response? <laughs> um, so there wasn't any immediate response, right? I mean, the, the congregants left. And um, so then Alan and Jones are saying, like saying, okay, what are we going to do? We're going, we need to meet, uh, we're meeting the physical needs, but we need to meet the spiritual needs of the congregants. And the spiritual needs weren't being met at the church. So, we need to form our own congregation. Now, they had always thought about this and they had actually approached the leadership of St. George's as well as the denominational leadership about um, building their own house of worship where they could really fully address the spiritual needs of the congregants. But they were always turned down. The elders always refused them the request to do that. Um, meanwhile, they continued to, to suffer all the indignities of St. George's. Uh, so, so eventually this took place. And so they went out and they said, look, um, you know what, we're going to have to really take matters into our own hands. And so they started to raise funds um, in order to build their own house of worship. You know, um, they had to go to a couple of rented places in order to do that, but it was rented. They needed what they needed to have their own building to do this. Um, the response by St. George's was not really affirmative. Um, when they got wind that they were actually raising funds to do this, uh, the, uh, the elders sent representatives to, to Allen to, to stop the project, to, to stop raising funds. Uh, they threatened to, quote, read them out of meeting, essentially excommunicating them from the church to continue with this. Um, Allen pushed back, basically saying, look, you know what? You are not doing right by these congregants. What are you going to do about it? And so this was a long back and forth. Um, meanwhile, Allen and Jones just continued to go ahead in terms of uh, raising funds to, to uh, put together the church. And they, they were able to raise a lot of money to be able to um, get a, a building and move it to the site of a former blacksmith's shop. Um, and that's where they were able to, to have their first service. If you look at the logo of the AME church, you will see smack in the middle of the logo, you'll see a cross and an anvil, a blacksmith's anvil, which is an acknowledgement of the physical location where they actually had their first, their, their first meeting to this day. So the AME, that's a nod to the, the circumstances into which they, they had their, uh, they, their first location, their first church group. Wow, that's, that's definitely helpful um, when, you, when thinking about the formation of the church. The church. Um, for the contributors, were there major other white denominations that saw what Richard Allen and Absalom Jones were doing and decided to help or any, um, who were the contributors outside of the congregants? Yeah, look, I mean, that whole process from when they first left to when they actually first got a building, um, you know, that was close to, you know, close to four or five years. This was a long time over building the funds. The, uh, one of the 
very curious things is that one of the major, there were, there were two major um, white contributors to Alan's efforts. One was Benjamin Rush, and the other one, and I'm blanking on his name now, was a major philanthropist. There's an, another white Philadelphian who was known, he was a major businessman who had acquired a lot of wealth um, in terms of the India trade, and so who became a, a, an early philanthropist. Uh, but Benjamin Rush, um, by, by far, is the more uh, high-profile name. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence from the uh, Philadelphia Contingent. Um, and Benjamin Rush is, uh, well, let me say this. His, um, his spirituality was kind of complicated, right? I mean, he was, he was raised uh, basically as a, uh, in terms of Calvinist, in terms of religion, but... Um, over time, it sort of morphed into more universalist type sort of things. Um, he clearly was, a, if you would call him, a child of the Enlightenment, right? He really was strong in, his, in the understanding of the Enlightenment, the inherent beliefs of the Enlightenment, of the equality of men, and uh, the, the inherent rights of each individual human being, okay? So you can see very much why, how he was a major supporter of revolutionary, American revolutionary ideals um, in terms of that. And, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see that out of his uh, philosophical commitments, as well as his sort of religious commitments, um, you know, if you read a lot of his own writings toward the end of his life, he, he, he basically took up the theological position, frankly, that, um, you know, there really isn't such a thing as a hell that everybody uh, eventually will, will go to heaven, that God will really sort it all out. But he clearly had strong, deep sympathies to the plight of Alan and his congregants. And he was one of the first um, white folks to sign in, and he, he both he and this uh, business type uh, contributed a substantial amount. So it's interesting to see how it was mostly um, sort of liberal theologian, people of a liberal theolog uh, theological space, and uh, a sort of a more, shall we say, secular enlightenment bias who saw the issue of injustice with regard to this situation and were able to, or, or, or decided to do something about it as opposed to the sort of, um, you know, you see, you have to be, you have to be careful how to, because in the historical context, you can talk about conservative or, or sort of orthodox theology uh, taking place. But clearly the, in terms of the, the, the Methodists hierarchy, they were definitely trying to sabotage it every twist and turn. So all during the time this was taking place, they were making threats. They actually took them to court. They were some of the biggest obstacles in trying to do this. Understand that, um, so Richard Island was very loyal to the Methodist Church for a couple of reasons. First, it was the context under which uh, he came to faith, obviously, so he was very loyal for that reason, but also because of their philosophy of ministry, right? Um, uh, he was truly convinced that their philosophy of ministry was best in terms of reaching out to people of African descent. Yeah, because he really felt that the, the Anglicans were very intellectually oriented, and so it tended to go over the heads of most common people. Um, and moreover, the, the, the Methodist uh, philosophy of ministry appealed to both head and heart, right? Uh, there wasn't a separation of head and heart that, that he really feared was the case with, with Anglicans. And, and so he was very, very strongly committed to that. Um, but the church, the original congregation, the congregation of these, of, of these uh, folks of African descent initially said, hey, we're going to go with the Anglicans because we're being treated better by the Anglicans. So for a couple of years, they really went with that until they, they changed course, particularly when um, uh, they, they were able to, um, under a lawsuit, be, be legally separated from the Methodist hierarchy. Um, and uh, all the all the strings attached in terms of that, and they were able to form their own congregation in that way. <clears throat> so, um, so there was there's a whole lot of church dynamics involved in terms of the formation that led to this sort of independent denomination uh, being formed, right? Before it actually really became to, came to to to, uh, to to fruition. But the the point I think that's being made 
is that here are these here are these um, churches that are supposedly committed to orthodox theology, committed to his, historical Christian theology in terms of their orthodoxy, but the praxis was completely separated, right? Um, in their mind, they could justify the treatment of people of African descent as inferior. Um, they, 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 the, their theology did not challenge the, the presupposition of the inferiority of race and therefore their conduct. It didn't challenge the social order. He, he was a deep irony, and I think it's important to mention Francis Asbury in terms of this. For, um, John Wesley, uh, in particular, was an avowed abolitionist. From the beginning, he strongly felt that the institution of slavery was an existential evil, and really, um, he could not see how one could claim to be of faith and hold slaves at the same time. So Asbury came over strongly advocating that. So in the early days of the sort of Methodist movement, um, he, he strongly said that we cannot, you cannot be accepted as a full member within the Methodist movement if you own slaves. I mean, he said that point blank. Unfortunately, uh, within the American context, of course, because of economic, particularly economic concerns, but also... And this is an interesting rationalization. And, um, you know, it's not exactly a clear cut answer, but also because they said that um, slave owners who were told that they had to release their slaves also would consider the Methodist message a threat. So they refused to allow access of the circuit preachers to their, to their enslaved African persons. And so the message preachers had to weigh whether or not um, to allow this to slide, if only because then they could get the gospel to enslaved Africans. So they made that they made that compromise. They they, they decided, okay, you know what? We we will not read out of meeting, as it were, those who own slaves. Only because there was the bigger goal of um, of being able to reach the uh, the the enslaved African population. Um, but Asbury personally always had a dislike of that. And the sign of it for Asbury, the sign that you can see that Asbury personally detested this was that when the church was officially dedicated, he spoke, he, he uh, preached the first sermon and he was there at the dedication of the building. Okay. So remember this, he's the leader of the Methodists, the, the, the local Methodist leadership, was giving them all sorts of grief, but he's there, the leader of the Methodists, dedicating the building and speaking the initial sermon and, uh, you know, anointing Francis Allerton as an official bishop, <laughs> right, uh, with the movement. Um, so uh, that's a powerful statement by this white, this, you know, this white Christian, this white leader, against his own denomination and the way in which this, the local representative of his denomination was behaving um, for him to do that. Um, and they were always very, very close, uh, you know, in many senses. Asbury and, and, and Allen were, were, uh, had a very, very good relationship. But I think that statement said a lot in and of itself. As for the rest of the church, you know, particularly the hierarchy in St. George's, and it's interesting to note, the first church that Asbury preached when he came to North America was at St. George's. It was the first church he preached at. So the irony is all over the place in terms of this. Um, nevertheless, the, here we go. Here we end up with the outcome that the folks who provide the funds are folks who we would consider to be more liberal in terms of their theological leanings today, as opposed to the folks who are more orthodox, who were the ones who were trying to undermine uh, uh, this type of work. Yeah, what's interesting, too, is that... Um... Richard Allen still was very orthodox in his theology. Mm, exactly. so he, he received funds from those who were, were not, would not considered orthodox. So he didn't let the financial contribution change his um, theological conviction. No. no. And the good and, thing was there wasn't, no, there were no strings attached. I mean, I didn't, you know, I don't think there was any particular expectation on the part of the folks who were philanthropists. I think they were just, they were just operating out of their sort of uh, intellectual sort of convictions. Um, 
as well as where they they thought their you know their their sort of theological convictions led them, right? I mean, they hadn't sort of reconciled it to in such a way. Um, but that didn't stop him from accepting you know the funds to do that, right? I mean, he didn't he didn't really care. <laughs> he he basically got the money to put it together, and 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 so be it. So be it. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. It's I mean, a paper could be written on that just alone and the sure. nuances of that. And, um, so I think it's it's very fascinating. Um, when we think about uh, how the AME denomination spread, how how did it become what it is today as far as it's spreading from Philadelphia um, to the rest of the U.S.? Yeah, so the AME, um, there were other independent congregations that were coming about because of very similar types of situations. Um, one of the biggest and more strategic ones were in New York, was in New York. Um, so, so Alan had the church in Philadelphia, but uh, there were churches, in, particularly in New York and other places that were also saying, hey, we have these sort of standalone congregations of people of African descent. Um, we hear and understand your particular evolution. Um, can we now band together as a under a common polity, right? Common church polity, uh, an organization um, by which we can start to do this ministry and this work. And so that's essentially what happened, right? Um, there were some denominational or some some sort of theological issues at the beginning, and so you did see some offshoots, but the original the original formation of the AME. Um, took place with uh, Alan designated as the leader, but also writing down essentially what you could call the constitutional documents of the AME. And if you look at them, you they're very closely related to the Methodist Church, right? Um, and I think Alan himself was very, very. Uh, you see, I I have um, I mean I've known about Alan for a long time, but in doing in writing about him and his formation, I have a lot of uh, I've I've really grown to deeply respect not only clearly his ministry capabilities, but his organizational capabilities as well. He understood the needs of proper organization and proper structure if uh, this denomination and particularly the people within the organization was to flourish. So within the organizational structure was put into place um, not only... uh, uh, church constitutional things in terms of practice, in terms of discipleship, um, in terms of teaching, in terms of training, but also in terms of meeting the whole needs of the person as well. I mean, those things were always knit. So that that sort of free African society uh, really started to work together with the church um, in terms of meeting the whole needs of the person. To this day, right, if you if you become a member of the AME, that structure is still in place. You have you go through this formational disciples of structure in which you not only need to understand the history of the church, but there's also a, a, a discipleship structure which um, you know there's they have to, you know, the AME to this day has its own publishing house in which they they list these things out, you know. I mean, no there's no independent church winging their own things. It's it's very highly structured and organized and that's kept in place to to this day and it's very much uh, kept to their understanding of, of, of scripture to this day, um, and so with, within it, it was uh, it was a very highly structured formation. And you know, the Methodist structure was that. I mean, the, the um, in terms of some of the things that the Methodists brought to the table, one of the things was church discipline. Right? They were very very strong on that, and um, it was a real, it really was a gift to the American church as a whole realizing the need of communities that would reinforce um, not just good thinking, but good, but helpful behavior, right? What what are the church disciplines? What's good behavior as well? You know, you think about this a bit and you think about just the understanding of human persons and how you really can't separate mind from body you know, you, you may think all the right thoughts and believe all the right things, but if you, but if you're not, if you if you're allowing your body to do all sorts of other random things that 
don't match up with this, it's it's not a good combination, right? I mean, New Testament talks about it all the time, and I and I think in many ways um, the the Methodists got that. They they clearly understood the importance of living right, acting right, and not just acting for show, but acting you know action connected to what we fundamentally believe or what you un- understand and underbelieve um, as a means of discipleship, right? Um, and so those things still are very important aspects of, of the movement then and continue uh, uh, more or less, at least the idea of it continues more or less uh, to the day. Yeah. And I, yeah, they, they, it seemed like they were, they understood it to, except when it came to their interaction with Africans. Um, let me let me also say one thing the the um the ame also really started to gain prominence in the context of of the 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 years leading up to the civil war and after the civil war right because as far as christian denominations were concerned Theirs was the one with the longest pedigree, right? I mean, it was a known institution from from really early on in the 19th century, right? From from the 18th century coming on to the 19th century. So when the um, when the Civil War started to draw to its conclusion, and you and there needed to, and there was a lot of thinking about. Not just reconstruction, but what now does it mean for newly freed people of African descent, African Americans, free black people? What's going to be important in terms of their whole needs? The the, the AME in many ways was was ready to go. Okay, they they definitely were were ready to 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 get on with it, um, and. You know, you, you, there's a lot of accounts of folks looking up or really getting in touch with uh, local AME bishops and churches who put in place, um, you know, aid, relief organizations consistent with this early founding, um, relief organizations, schools, right, um, Universities, so Wilberforce University in Ohio, I believe, is AME related. Comes out of that space. Um, so these these particular sorts of things, they had the structures in place to try to do that. So so, and they weren't the only one, but far from it. And and I think by then you you started to see other sorts of denominations emerge. But um, because of the structure that was in place, it really um, it was ready made to be able to receive and take on the work, right, of, of uh, trying to integrate African-Americans into the new structure, right, to start help them to start to acquire their place as free persons within the Republic, which, which was going to be a very, very important part of Reconstruction and what was going to happen going forward. Yeah, that's, that's very important. And it, it really... So one of the pushbacks when we think about apologetics and why this is important, because mm-hmm. there's a narrative that suggests that um, slaves were not thinking and they just took this faith of the slave master without mm-hmm. critical thinking. Yeah. But the, the, the formation of the AME church really pushes back at that um, false narrative because you've got somebody who's highly structured, mm-hmm. Richard Allen, thinking critically about the needs of the people he's serving, creating organizations and relief efforts for them. Um, and so not just concerned with the spiritual needs. So mm-hmm. it is also concerned about economic needs, pushing back mm-hmm. on uh, white leaders. Um, and so it just pushes the his- history, pushes back on false narratives. Yeah, And so that's why I, I wanted to talk about that today, because I think it's very, very important. Very much so. Very much so. You know, I mean, I mean, the AME, um, and again, this is not the only place, but it's interesting to know how the AME, as a, as a, as a, uh, an African American um, organizational structure, um, 
really push back against structures of white supremacy that would try to force people into a box and into a social order. In many ways, um, it confounded the presuppositions of this racial order. It really did. Um, it really sort of um, undermined the presuppositions of the order in terms of black inferiority, black inability to organize well, black intellectual capacity, um, uh, you know, you know, in context for growth, development as a as a whole person, as a whole being. Um, it it really it really sort of you use the word narrative. It's a strong refutation of that that narrative, which. Uh, predominantly did that. And I think it also confounds this narrative of it supposedly being a white religion. I mean, you, you, you talk, you, if you look to Alan in and of itself, I mean, you know, understand that people of African descent were in the American context from the beginning, okay? Uh, and they made their own life out of it, right? Um, I mean, the Holy Spirit directly deals with persons. It doesn't it, it may be mediated with persons, but at the end of the day, it deals directly with persons. Uh, and it deals directly within context. And I think that's the reason why when we discuss the black church, um, and this is also important to understand, um, you know, not all folks who came to the new world were not Christian. There were Christians who Black folks who were Christians who came over as well, particularly from the Congo region, who were mostly Catholics. I mean, so there are folks who 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 were spiritually aware of at least of the, of the monotheism and the realities of that, and who came to faith in the midst of that. Um, you know, who were able to experience God directly in the context of that. So, in many ways. Um, the development of Christianity within the black context was despite uh, white framing of it in such a way as to put people of African descent into a lower social order. They reinterpreted to, uh, to adhere to the fundamental aspect of scripture, which is all people are created in God's image, right? All people are created in God's image, God's image is directly reflected in each and every person. And so each and every person directly has a connection and a context with God. And out of that, uh, God's face gets revealed uh, to the rest of the created order. Um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't any sort of filter to alter that, um, which can be the presupposition of a lot of folks who are kind of say, well, we're just taking all white man's religion. Nah, nah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, even when there's one of the prominent things in evangelicalism now is racial reconciliation. And yeah. I think two things from this story that just the formation of the African church and what Richard Allen and Absalom Jones endured um, with St. George points to two things like reconciliation is the is, when you think about reconciliation, you also think about a relationship that existed before um, that was <laughs> that had some kind of uh, a positive that you're trying to get back to. And so in America, there was never a time where Africans and and whites worshiped together in a way that was dignifying to both persons. Yeah. And so we can't get back to something that was never there. So there can kind of be no reconciliation if the relationship really never existed. Um, number two, I think that um, when we think about how the w people at St. George didn't necessarily kick Africans out. They just made the conditions so uncomfortable yes. that we left. And so this is what I keep seeing today in evangelical spaces. The conditions are just so so problematic in white church spaces. And this is not just white evangelical spaces, it's white liberal spaces as well. Conditions just are so hostile and so unloving that there is no other option but to leave. And um, 
it, it is it's playing itself out repeatedly um, when we see like um, white evangelical organizations or just white liberal theological institutions not being able to retain African-American staff, um, mm. students not wanting to be there uh, because just conditions aren't conducive. And so it's not just inviting minorities in, it's also making the conditions um, welcoming. Yeah. Uh, in which both people feel like are, are treated as human beings, um, both with the image of God. So, so two comments on that. I think um, one is a historical one, right? It, see, see, <laughs> um, I, I, I hope to have the honor of uh, meeting my fellow historian, Jamar Tisbia at some point, because uh, he, he said something on Twitter the other day that I thought was a really great line. He says, and this is one of the interesting things about being a historian, and, and this is one of the things why people hate historians so much, because we've got the receipts, right? That's <laughs> In other words, we have we have evidence. So one of the interesting things when you read in, in Alan's account, which it's a throwaway line, but it leads me to believe that he had something, he had a vision and actually something going on, which I think was extremely threatening to the social order. And it was simply this, that here was a, here was an institution that was controlled by black folk. So that just by itself is a threatening thing. Okay. An autonomous black institution is threatening to the social order because it undermines the narrative of the social order. Two, he has this line toward the end where he, where he talks about when the church was dedicated. And he said, he talks about how he, He's looking forward to meeting in heaven those who were blessed by this ministry, both black and white. In other words, he, he is making this line that not just black folks were members of this congregation, but white folks as well. Okay? So, so here's the point, uh, and here's the continued uh, discussion that needs to be had. Is it possible to have institutions where truly, um, and this is what what a sort of, and I'll, and I'll use the word reconciled in the sense that, um, you know, reconciled implies that something at the beginning. Your, your point is totally right. I mean, we have to find another, maybe we have to find another piece of vocabulary for this. But is it possible to, to have institutions where, uh, white people can be under black leadership and it's okay, right? Uh, white folks can serve under black folks and it's okay. Uh, white folks don't have to be in control and it's okay. The, that small line from Richard Allen says to me that there were white folks who were willing to serve under this black autonomous structure and it was okay. And I'm willing to go out on a limb to say that in Allen's mind, because remember Allen worked within a white control structure. He worked with circuit writers who, who understood the roadblocks to proper ministry to people of African descent. Allen was willing to, willing you new white folks within the Methodist structure who were amenable to what he was trying to do. I don't think at the beginning, Alan said, no white folk need apply. Um, this structure is, it's obviously predominantly black, but that's because within white social structures, you just, you just don't associate with black folk. It was not a matter of black folk keeping white folk out. It was black folk being rejected by white folk, but there were white folk who were willing to come under this structure and to be served and to serve uh, under clear black leadership. The ideal at the end of the day would be to have a church where it doesn't matter, but let's not be naive. We're not there yet. And probably one of the initial signs of healing, at least for, for white folks who, who are there are those who would say, Hey, you know, you know, it's like a throwaway. It's that throwaway line from the Psalms. Remember, we talked about in the Psalms. David, I don't know if it's David who wrote this, but it's one of those ascent Psalms where he says, "You know, in those days, um, some of the people going to Israel 
you know, folks who are not, those who are not Israel will grab so-and-so by the cloak and say, hey, I'm going with you because you know where God is. So, so white folk can go to a black congregation because we know, hey, we know God is there. I need to find God. I'm going to go, <laughs> go there. I don't care who's in charge. I need to find where God is. I'm going to go. End of story. So, so I think from the beginning, the you know, I mean, I can't speak to what eventually happened, and and obviously, you know, the 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 sort of social order is it's a powerful spiritual force that continues to sort of divide and and say you belong in this space and you belong in this space, this social order and how it gets reinforced all sorts of ways, um, but a truly radical Christian act would be to say, you know what? We serve the God of the scriptures and we are willing to revoke, we are willing to defy the social order that says, I can't be here. And I'm gonna come and, you know, as a white person, I'm gonna come and serve under uh, black, not token black leadership too, but, but you know, within an African-American context. Or maybe both sides will have to change eventually. Let's see what that happens, right? Um, so, so let's see that because we know we know that we know we are hearing stories now in terms of just the difficulty of black congregants to remain in so-called mixed congregations. Well, hmm, has you know the point you well made is the cultural context healed enough so that black folks know that their dignity is honored there when they come? It's a lot of work. And there's a lot of hidden landmines to work through in order to really have that space. Are people willing to do that work, right? Or is that is there that sort of thing that says, oh, well, we can tolerate so many people, but then when it comes to that tipping point, well, now all of a sudden we start looking around and start making all sorts of discussions. So, so um, all, all that to say is that um, there is a, there's a lot of work to be done but the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating, right? It's going to be in the praxis. What does the praxis look like with regard to that? Yeah, I think that's that's important. So what books would you recommend if you if people want to find out more about the formation of the AME Church um, and Africans during that time and their spiritual formation? <laughs> you know what? I have, <laughs> I've been I've been working on stuff for a while like now and um I'm also teaching African and Christian. I have, so I literally have my book stacked next to my desk. I mean, so good visual aid. Look, I mean, some of these are fairly. This this one is a this one is a classic, right? Um, the Black Church and the African American ex, uh, Experience by Lincoln and Mamiya. These guys are actually sociologists who are are looking at the Black Church, and so they come at it from a very interesting angle. But it it, it still was a go to book for many years. Um, there there are newer ones than this. Um, there is a quick introduction um, written by Ann Penn and Anthony Penn called The Fortress Introduction to Black Church History. Um, uh, Carol um, George wrote, um, she writes a lot on the intersection of churches and race, particularly at the time of their formation. I'm blanking on the name of her stuff now. I should have had my paper out. I could have cited cited her, but uh, in, in which he talks about the formation of the AME church. Um, man, I should be able to have these at command and I'm, I'm blanking on them, but um, Carol George. Um, and you mentioned Rick, Richard Allen's memoir. I think that's yeah. like- So that's a primary source. You could Google that. You should be able to find that online. I think it's like 99 cent on Kindle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you know, that's pretty. I mean, even the AME House has that, uh, just on general principle, right? Um, you can. It's easy to obtain that, but it's interesting to read through through that as well. It's a great primary source. Um, Richard, I think it's Richard Nelson wrote the most recent biography on uh, Richard Allen and the Church. It's very, very good. I also recommend that. That's also very, very. Uh, helpful. Um, yeah, there, there, there are a few others that can come to mind, and I can send them to you. You can kind of post them a little bit later if you if you wanted to do that. But um, 
those 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 two are, are sort of go-to ones. They're more recent ones, but those two are they still have legs, even though they're a little bit uh, older. They still have legs in terms of you know an entry point, um, in terms of trying to find out the basics. Um, they, it still worked. Well, how can people get in contact with you on social media? Yes, I'm at on Twitter at Nick zero one nine zero two. That's my Twitter handle, uh, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, I believe, yeah, you can look me up on Facebook as well. Those are my two places. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rowe. This has been a great conversation and I know our listeners will enjoy it. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.